As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and this week marks a decade without an F1 race win for Fernando Alonso, with his last victory coming on May the 12th, 2013. But after a run of four podiums in five races, he's having his best run of form since then, and is closer than ever to ending that drought. But is he back to his best? And is that elusive win just around the corner? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to tackle those questions and more are Glenn Freeman and Ben Anderson. Well, Ben, welcome. Last time you were talking down Sergio Perez's title hopes, so are you feeling <laughs> suitably prophetic given what happened in Miami? Uh, well, nothing happened in Miami that I didn't expect to happen, except for maybe Verstappen not getting pole position, but I mean, he should have done. Um, I don't I don't revel in it. I don't wish Sergio Perez any ill will. Um, I hope he does make a real fight of the championship for everyone's sake, but I just feel like, as I said on the last show, it's very unlikely and the events of Miami don't really uh, act as a, a good portent of things to come for Perez, do they? Yes, uh, I think he'll be slightly discouraged by what happened there. Good performance from him, but Verstappen ultimately was on another level. And I'm also joined by Glenn Freeman. Glenn, you'll take a little bit of time out, given your between bring back V10 season. So I guess it's just lean back and relax for you at this stage. If only. <laughs> I do tend to give myself a few weeks off, if you can call it that, from all things bring back V10s when a series ends. And those weeks fly by. And then before I know it, I'm into... The, the mammoth research that you have to do for the show. Uh, I, I've done a couple of the episodes I've, I've done the research for already, and I shared one in our in our Twitter community, the Bring Back V10's Twitter community, showing the word count, which was 18,000 words, and that's just the research from which I've then got to create a script. So um, that that's a little insight into what goes on when we're not releasing episodes of the show. And uh, actually, once the series is active, that's the easy bit for me because we're, we're just recording the episodes or 
or releasing them. It's, it's the stuff in between, much like in F1, when all the hard work's going on in the factory in the winter and we assume they're not doing anything because they're not racing. Uh, but that's when the real work's going on. And one of the joys of such research is the amount of material there is is enormous. And I know that because right now I'm I'm sitting in, in my flat and there's probably about 500 old magazines and about 100 books in this room in various piles as I've been sorting through them for various bits. And I'm not even doing the main amount of the research and Glenn's the one who's really doing the, the Bring Back V10's heavy lifting. So uh, yeah, you can never do too much research. But yeah, something to look forward to. I always enjoy doing the Bring Back V10's podcast, especially as I can just relax, turn up, say a few words. And Glenn Say does... too many words usually. Exactly. Well, I have a lot of important <laughs> things to say and somebody's got to talk about LaRousse every now and again, haven't they? But yeah, always... <laughs> Do they? <laughs> oh, they do. Well, I certainly do. Anyway, it's a compulsion in in my case. But yeah, a chance for Glenn to talk about contemporary matters, which is always very welcome. So let's get on with it, Glenn. I mean, Fernando Alonso's last win was in the 2013 Spanish Grand Prix for Ferrari. Good one too. Started fifth, passed Lewis Hamilton around the outside of turn three on the opening lap. Jumped Sebastian Vettel in the pit stops, then overtook Rosberg. Four-stop strategy in that one. So a far cry from the one-stoppers that we have today. And Alonso then, he was a 32-year-old. He was leading Ferrari. He was coming off the back of that phenomenal 2012 season, firmly in the title hunt, having won two of that year's five races. So how improbable is what's followed for him? Well, I think we should point out that going back to Fernando Alonso's most recent victory isn't exactly contemporary now, is it? As you said at the top, it's uh, a decade ago. I don't think anyone could have predicted what followed over the rest of 2013, let alone the rest of the decade. Uh, at that time in 2013, as you mentioned, a four-stop race, it was when the, the Pirelli tyres were at their, I think, most most fragile. It, you know, It wasn't even a case of you press on, and then do lots of pit stops because that's the fastest way. This was this was probably the ultimate race of, uh, I guess you could call it delta driving. You know, they were given a lap time by the teams and, and you had to stick to that lap time to eke your tyres out for long enough. Red Bull at the time were completely against this, really, really critical. It was one of the few times by then that you'd even hear from Dietrich Mateschitz criticising F1. And by the middle of 2013, the tyres were changed, weren't they? I think we had that British Grand Prix where we had um, quite a few failures and the tyres were, were beefed up and Sebastian Vettel went on that tear of winning, was it the final nine races of the year? So at the point of Alonso's last win, I don't think you could predict what would happen over the rest of that year. And if anyone told you what would happen over the next decade to Fernando, even if they got it bang on, if, if somebody came came to you from the future and said, this is what's going to happen to him every year from now on, you would laugh in their face and say it was absolutely ridiculous. So no, I, I, I couldn't have predicted at the time it would be his last win of that season with Ferrari. And you just, you couldn't predict every turn that he's taken since then, whether that's the decisions he's made off track or the things that have happened to him on track, the teams he's driven for, the cars he's driven the, the other championships that he's he's ended up in this I, 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 I don't know where you can well I would say you can pinpoint I think the big mistake was was leaving Ferrari at the end of 2014 and I don't say that in that in hindsight I thought that looked like a bad move at the time he kind of he he maneuvered himself into a position where he had to gamble on McLaren Honda and really he's been paying for that ever since. 
Yeah, that was probably the misjudgment, wasn't it? And it was not just a misjudgment of what horse to back, because obviously McLaren had spent a lot of time trying to sell the project to him, but also he slightly overplayed his hand inside Ferrari because he didn't think they had an alternative to him, not realising Vettel had a release clause he was willing to activate. So, yeah, not a political masterstroke. But, but it is amazing, isn't it, Ben? Because for me, the whole trajectory with Alonso is that he's a guy who's going to win four or five world championships. You think back to when he just won that second title with Renault, he was going off to McLaren. And then there's this long period where, yeah, he's mega, the next championship will be around the corner, and he's still firmly there at that point 10 years ago. But then just this bizarre sequence of events has just led to him underachieving. You know, If you took his career in terms of results from 14 onwards, it's almost that of a high-class journeyman, which is not the level he's performing at but if you just look purely at the results you'd say oh this guy was he was decent but he was a he was a handy midfielder nothing more yeah i think that's why it's uh, it's handy for us that we're able to see the performance first or second hand and live through it because the level that he drives at is so far above the track record he has in terms of results particularly recently but also there's only a couple of small circumstantial changes that could have meant he had many more championships that he does. I mean, obviously the McLaren situation first time around was extremely tense and fraught, but had that played out differently, he could have very easily won the 2007 championship and maybe the 08 championship as well. The cars were good enough. So he's cast into kind of his first wilderness, gets out of that, ends up at Ferrari again, there's a couple of near misses there, so that could be two more world championships. And then after that, well, I agree with Glenn's point that had he stayed at Ferrari, things would have worked out. But that is a hindsight thing because 15-16, no one was going to win a race in that 2016 Ferrari. He would have probably won a race in the 15 car Vettel did. And Alonso, I remember we did a story about Alonso being a wasted talent for autosport around this time Um, and a story that he saw and said, well, he was perfectly happy because he never had a contract that meant he would stay at Ferrari beyond, I think, 2016. So when the car then improved under the new regulations and Ferrari became sort of title contenders again, he was content with that because he was like, well, I'd never would have been guaranteed a place in that team. So that success isn't necessarily my success, but... I think it is fair to say that had he played things differently, he could have stayed at Ferrari certainly that long and enjoyed at least the success Vettel enjoyed and probably given the way Alonso drives and the the level he performs at, he might well have got at least one of those 2017-2018 titles over the line for Ferrari in a way that Vettel didn't. So partly um, his own machinations backfiring, um, and certainly he, subsequent to his first in and that, that 2013 inflection point, he could have, he could have achieved so much more if he was in, in better cars. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm inclined to think he'd have had a good chance of the 18 championship with Ferrari. I think the 17 car was a little bit too circuit specific to have done that, but you never know ultimately, but he does always bang that drum about bad decisions weren't always bad decisions and he's quite comfortable with the level of achievement I remember asking him about it in Brazil last year and he said well some drivers never win a race in their career only get one I've won plenty and I've won two championships and I sort of thought 
I'm not entirely buying that. But it, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? I believe him. I believe him. I think he's quite oh. sanguine about this stuff. I don't. No, I, I think he, he's reading from the, the school of PR playbook there. Like, like the logic you had for, oh, who's to say I would have been at Ferrari in 17 and 18? My contract only ran to 2016. That's looking at it in a very specific light. Whereas if you're Fernando Alonso and you're still leading Ferrari during 2015 and 16, they're not getting rid of you at the end of your contract. They're giving you a new one. So <laughs> and a, a driver as hungry for success as him as well. He's not looking at some guy down the back of the grid who turns up for a few seasons and never wins a race and goes, well, at least I've got 30 odd of them. Uh, deep down, it will frustrate the hell out of him that we're here now saying this guy hasn't won a race for 10 years. That 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 will be that will be eating him up inside, whether he tells us that or not. I'm convinced that's part of the psychology of what makes him want to still do Formula One. Yeah. He's 42 in a couple of months. So I think that's a big thing. There is this sense of unfinished business. And it's funny because if you ask him about the past decisions, he'll say, no, it was all fine. It was all the right move. But no one can ever say that. If you look over the last 15 years of your lives or I think the last 15 years of my life there's plenty of things that I'd have done better yeah I, I've he's got that reputation hasn't he for every decision he makes every, everywhere he goes it, it's a bad decision over the winter when we were you know we were all wondering out loud weren't we was Aston Martin the right place to go I went back through all of his decisions to work out how good or bad I thought they were and in the circumstances, I wasn't super critical of many of them. I th- he, he, he jumped off the Renault train onto McLaren at the right time. It just went wrong for different reasons. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, and in the circumstances he found himself in at the end of 2007, going back to Renault wasn't a disastrous idea either. He, he re-raised the level of that team when he went back there. That was always a stopgap, wasn't it, ultimately? The yeah, yeah. It could have been a lot worse. Um, he went to Ferrari at what seemed like a pretty good time. You know, they needed they needed to move on from Kimi Raikkonen. He became their their leader, and I, I don't think it was his fault that you know Ferrari didn't quite deliver while he was there. As we've discussed, he, I don't think he could have got himself any closer to to a couple of those championships. Really, the big one, as I've discussed, is um, as I mentioned earlier, was the. I think getting itchy feet too quickly at Ferrari and an overreaction to a, a bad year in 2014. But even then, once he made that decision, the logic for going to McLaren Honda at the time, I think was relatively sound. You couldn't have expected McLaren Honda to be as bad as it was. Uh, even if you didn't think they were going to win championships, and you didn't think they were going to be as great as McLaren Honda the first time around was. It, McLaren weren't that far removed from being a, a very competitive team, at the very least in podium contention, and only a few years removed from being race winning. You stick that out, and then he kind of he got fed up with McLaren at a time, which I think was understandable. Obviously, McLaren got a bit better as he left. I'm not certain he would have been able to see that coming. And again, McLaren have kind of stalled out since then anyway. Um, and then coming back, he, you know, he decided to come back with Renault. Uh, obviously, he became Alpine, but Renault looked pretty good at the time he came back and appeared to be on the right trajectory. And obviously, Aston Martin has ended up being a great decision. We weren't sure about that before we saw the cars. Um, but, you know, Alpine is doing a very bad job at the moment. Um, and so I think, really, 
I'm not super critical of all of the decisions. It is just that one, the, the one that has changed the course of his career, I think, is the one walking out of Ferrari. But of course, there's also the decisions about the way you do certain things, because obviously he made himself a driver that the biggest teams are a little bit wary of. And because there's been, you know, Alonso's an absolutely phenomenal driver. And if I was running a team, he'd be right near the top of my list. But because he was at a time when there were sort of three, four drivers, you know, Vettel, Hamilton, Raikkonen, you know, some outstanding drivers there, Robert Kubica, if he, uh, obviously a little bit short-lived his career, but really, really high-quality drivers. There were always alternatives. So I think that there's also that question of the way you do things. Did he need to go quite so nuclear at times with McLaren the first time round? And all these things that had an impact. So, yeah, I think you make a fair point about the decision some make perfect sense you know going to Ferrari was never a bad decision that was a good choice to to make but yeah maybe there's ways he could have done things slightly differently to optimize his chances but coming back to that that point about also being happy with a lack of success I mean Ben you think you, you seem to be happy with that but surely there is something in him that that still wants to prove himself and have that success you can't be as good as Fernando Alonso and look at the last 10 years and think Certainly, the eight seasons, the, the eight years of that in Formula One, yeah, that was a good use of my time driving around, finishing fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. You know, I think even he's enjoying finishing third, but he wants to win races. Yeah, I, I, what I mean is, I think both things are true. So definitely, with Alonso, like all the great champions in almost any sport or every sport, they have this ferocious desire to win. That's all they're interested in, and Alonso is a hundred percent like that. But obviously he knows that he's not completely in control of his own destiny. There are circumstances around that will facilitate the results. And he's even mentioned it a few times, hasn't he, about his judgment of other top drivers. If they win races in the season when their car isn't the best, he has more respect for that. I always got the sense that he was slightly doubting of Sebastian Vettel's credentials because Vettel tended to... Well, he was slightly envious of Vettel just sweeping to those four championships in the best car. Yeah, And uh, he kind of felt, well, you know, you haven't shown you can do it in anything other than the best car. But I think it's... So I think it's a coping mechanism. I think he Mm. he does believe that, you know, he's had a good career because he's got the the trophies he does have. But I, I remember doing an interview with him some years back when he was in the depths of McLaren Honda despair... And he was his sanguine attitude was well. It's it's only your own ego when you look back on these things. Whether you have 101 trophies or 98 trophies or what have you, it doesn't matter at that point in your life because your your happiness and your success and your passions will be other things. So I, I believe that he can separate himself from one and the other, and therefore, in a weird way, both are true. He is both absolutely driven to win and massively frustrated when things don't work out. But he is also self-aware enough to realise that actually there's no point beating myself up about it or worrying about the fact that my career hasn't panned out to be the record world champion or record race winner because there are more important things in life than Formula One. Yeah, and I think despite all of that, the funny thing is with Alonso is almost this bizarre career trajectory is part of the legend of his career now in much the same way as Sterling Moss never winning a world championship is almost more valuable to his legend than if he'd maybe taken one of them. Obviously an absolutely great driver Sterling Moss. Fernando Alonso people say 
only two world championships. Well, yeah, he could have won more. Certainly, he came close to you know, give him a few more points here and there. He's got five, but and, and better to have been in that situation than be someone who won a couple but never had a chance of any other. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, that's that, very that, true. That will be his attitude to it. I and suppose. also, only two world championships. Well, Jim Clark's only got two world championships. Yes, <laughs> different circumstances, but I don't think in terms of how we evaluate his greatness as a driver, it makes a huge difference. But it, it is just very, very very odd but I suppose it's just become intrinsic to him that so often his talent has been deployed in losing causes (laughs) yeah and going back to the Ferrari point this key inflection moment in his career where you know Glenn's of the opinion and it's a fair enough point you know that he made a bad decision there or a questionable decision and should have stuck it out for longer Alonso would argue he had to leave Ferrari when he did because the trajectory of the team was so disappointing. He didn't want to fall out with them. In my discussions with him, I felt like Ferrari was a really special team for him to be a part of. He felt like culturally they were the closest to him. He he maintained that he still had friendships there and, and relationships in Maranello. And I've it's in previous and other situations, he has definitely burned his bridges with teams. He's he's shown a kind of lack of sympathy for those he's worked with and their declining situations and just almost a scorched earth policy. And we've seen it more than once. But I think with Ferrari, he's actually behaved in a different way. And then that's resulted in him actually leaving the team too soon. Whereas if he'd been a bit more calculating with them and less thinking with his heart rather than his head, like Glenn says, he would have stuck it out and then he would have, he would have definitely enjoyed more success than he has done. Well, his fundamental problem at Ferrari was right at the very top, ultimately, rather than with a lot of the, the rank and file and those around him. Whereas some of his comments recently about Alpine, there was that comment over the radio, I think, in Miami, where he talked about free practice being Alpine's moment, which is just a <laughs> fairly needless uh, needless little, little bar. But Glenn, do you think there's any question about whether this impinges on the greatness uh, of Alonso? Because sometimes... People do try to factor that in, oh, how can he be considered a great on the level of Lewis Hamilton because Hamilton's got three and a half times as many championships as him? Yes, it's a really good point. And I was fascinated by this before his his kind of rebirth with Aston Martin this year because it had been so long since he'd even been in a good car. And it had crossed my mind, yeah, the guy, his championships were so long ago. F1's got so many new fans since then. And I always wondered, people have my generation of our generation of people on this podcast we remember Alonso as the emerging star we remember him being the guy who didn't so much have the baton passed to him from Michael Schumacher he wrestled it away from him you know he (laughs) represented the end of the Schumacher era He, he and Renault slayed the Ferrari beast and that was so long ago I was thinking there are so many I'd be I was always curious to know what newer fans or people newer to the sport thought of him. Was he this great driver? And it was an honour that we were still witnessing his greatness and that he would keep plugging on in these rubbish cars. Or was he some guy whose peak was 15 years ago and everyone's asking, you know, why is he still here? I think now people are probably getting that answer. I, I saw a thing after the first couple of races claiming that he he was the F1 driver who's gained the most social media followers over the first part of this year. And I feel that a lot of the things we knew about his personality and all those things that make him so interesting and all the things he's willing to say and do, 
a lot of them were happening almost off the radar for a lot of people. And now it's all front and center, all of the little comments. You know, he, he knows, for example, that there's this Lance Stroll loving thing is going on and he's making a point, I'm sure, of being seen to say and do the right things. And now it's gained some momentum. He knows those things are going to be picked up in broadcast. He knows he's going to get asked about them afterwards. And that's perfect for him because he's got everybody dancing to his tune. I think the problem we had before this year was that he was still playing those tunes, but fewer and fewer people listened or or, or perhaps cared. But when he's gone, when he's no longer an active driver and who knows how far away that is. I mean, the guy's ageless. He could be here for another 10 years. Um, I think eventually it, the, the achievements will, will stand up for themselves. Ultimately you can't erase the words two time world champion and the, 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 the smaller details and all that does go away. I think it's probably good. It's good for the legacy that you can have this late, uh, late career flurry that he's getting. A lot of drivers don't get that. They they kind of drop off and then they just keep fading away. But we're at least getting a a reminder now that this is what he's been doing in all the bad cars, uh, and he he hasn't let his level drop at all. So if anything, that will probably boost the way his career is remembered because now it shows that the decline wasn't uh, to do with his part of the equation. Probably the only thing we haven't seen in sort of Alonso Mark II, if you like. Is We're way past up. Mark II. Yeah, Alonso Mark Cyborg. Uh, <laughs> is He hasn't gone up against a top-line teammate. You know, he had probably the last... Lance Stroll, future world champion. Well, Come yeah, on. okay, so the jury's out. Um, no, I think it's, it's fair to say. No, the jury's <laughs> come back. <laughs> the jury's come back. The jury back. has given its verdict. Is it, is it a unanimous Hopefully verdict? Um, yeah, perfectly good driver. <laughs> I mean, the last time Alonso had a top who you might consider a top teammate and some would actually doubt this categorization was probably Jensen Button when they were at McLaren Honda and the car was so awful. But even by that point, Button probably wasn't at his best and most would probably say his best wasn't quite at the Alonso rarefied level anyway. And then after that, it's been a succession of younger drivers, up and comers, people that Alonso basically has just had for breakfast for the most part. Um, no one, no kind of super generational younger talent and that would be the interesting thing I think to see to judge the level he's still at because it it does look very much like he hasn't dropped off but it's easier to look like that when the drivers you're up against are not at your level or the level of other top drivers yeah well I think the hope is that we'll be able to measure him against when he's really able to consistently go real wheel to wheel with the Verstappens and that kind of thing, a different machinery, I know, but it allows you to get some idea of, of where they're at. But yeah, yeah, certainly, if Alonso has lost anything, it's very, very little. Certainly not enough to make a make a massively demonstrable difference to what he does. Yeah, he's he's not Kimi Räikkönen at Sauber Alpha, is yeah. he? Like you could see that Räikkönen was dropping off by that point, or had long since dropped off, probably when he was at Ferrari with Vettel. Um, so. Alonso does look like the freak of nature who's just kind of defying that that decline. It's Schumacher as well when he came back. He wasn't quite he was not as bad as people seem to remember, but he was he was he wasn't what he was, certainly. But Alon- Alonso is much harder to judge. And uh if if you had to come down on one side or the other, you'd probably say, well, he's he's driving as well as he ever has. Yeah, certainly. And even Alonso, who's very fractionally not at the absolute peak, is still outstandingly good in in Formula One. That's just how good he's always been. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, Ben, let's look back to 2015, because you wrote what, in my opinion, stands as one of the most insightful pieces of writing on Fernando Alonso by way of a cover story for Autosport. You spent plenty of time then talking to Alonso, people who knew him, worked with him. And you've continued to study him since. So why is he, in your opinion, still here in F1? Oh, thank you very much. I'm very proud of that piece of work. So uh, appreciate Monkeys and tigers. <laughs> <it? laughs> yes, uh, I had to do at least one good thing uh, while you were my editor, I suppose. So uh, That's what Ed's really doing. He's basically praising himself for commissioning a Fernando <laughs> yeah. Alonso package. You just happen to be the guy he picked to deliver it. <laughs> That's the real art. I expressed myself in Ben's industry. <laughs> I think we're having our Gordon Murray MP44 moment here. Uh, I, I would describe it as a collaboration. What's that saying in the legal letters? But, but one in which I had the most input. <laughs> uh, yeah, why is Alonso still here? Well, I think the answer to that question is he still believes he's the best driver in the world, and he he wants to test those skills against everyone else who thinks they're the best driver in the world in the top level championship. Um, I have a slightly modified view compared to back then in 2015 when he was still on the treadmill, you know, consistent seasons through Formula One. You know, his his dream at McLaren Honda was obviously to emulate Senna and win world championships with that famous alliance. You know, that was that was something he grew up watching or was paid a lot of attention to when in his formative years. So it was quite special for him to be in that project. And obviously, you know, it, it was a complete disaster and he kind of faded a bit with the team, I think, got out of Formula One and did what other drivers have feigned to do. Lewis Hamilton's talked before about the need to have a break, but the fear of doing so, meaning you just get left behind by the relentless development and evolution that takes place in Formula One, both technically and in terms of driving. But Alonso took that break, went and did some other racing, and I think came back with a kind of refreshed, slightly different view I think he still wants to win relentlessly but he doesn't he doesn't seem quite so pressurized he seems like he's enjoying it a lot more for what it is now and is I'm not going to say he's compromising because I'm sure behind the scenes he's as, as relentless as ever but I feel like he's better able to take the rough with the smooth and appreciate just being in Formula One and being able to drive at a top level just for what it is well, he did say in Baku, I asked him where his motivation comes from to still be doing it. And he said those two years out of F1 were very important, not just recharging the battery, but he, he said that he's enjoying it on track now and he's got a 
different approach to what he called the non-fun thing. So that's some of the off-track yes. stuff that he didn't like. And he said that yeah. before, the, the balance was off-whack. The, the enjoyment he was getting didn't counterbalance the, the negative. So that has helped him kind of endure. But there's, yeah, there's also something in Alonso that I think not only does he think he's the best, I think there's a, there's a real need for him to prove how good he is to people. And it's one of the things that I think, I've mentioned it before on podcasts, that for someone who's so good, he's very, very keen to prove to everyone he's good. Mostly people <laughs> who already know that. I think there's a strange there's, there's a strange kind of constant underdog element. It's been suggested to me, I, I, I say suggested to me because I'm not an expert on, on Spanish culture and that, but he's from Asterias, he's an Asterian from Oviedo. Supposedly that's a little bit of an outsider underdog region and that is a little bit of the, the kind of stereotypical character that there's that kind of need to prove themselves and they have to fight. And obviously Alonso was somebody who got to Formula One without massive resources behind him, just on sheer ability and determination. So he's always kind of been a, a fighter. So I think that's, that's always there as well. And I, I still think he not only wants to win, but it's like he needs to win, which is why I, I can't believe that the that the slightly underwhelming career numbers compared to, say, a Lewis Hamilton or even what Max Verstappen's starting to, to rack up will have a little bit of a, an effect on him. Yeah, well, back in 2015, Eric Boudier was racing director of McLaren and was obviously essentially managing the team when Alonso returned. And he described Alonso's need to win being like someone needing oxygen to breathe. It's like essential to his essence. And... I think that does remain, but obviously it's an unhealthy way to live your life if you're just so obsessed with winning all the time and you don't, if you don't have a way to kind of cope with that. I think Alonso's probably developed ways of coping with that better. He backed that that um, read up himself saying, you know, in everything he does in life, it's about winning. It doesn't matter if it's Formula One or football or basketball or anything. But that obsession drives you. The insecurity is probably also quite helpful in that uh I think was it Sterling Moss who said you have to try to be the best without believing that you are. Um I think Alonso has the self-belief, but the the need to prove himself will keep the the relentlessness going. You know, he's not prepared to just relax and say, oh I've got this now. Certain drivers you see through their career, they become a bit lazy. And it's good to be relaxed sometimes to get the best out of yourself but you can go too far that way not put the work in and just get left behind or stagnate Alonso every team he's in even the ones that he's burned bridges in and they don't like him necessarily anymore they always talk about how hard he works so that I think is a key part of what's keeping him fresh even at 41 nearly 42 and still driving uh, to, to win ultimately and obviously then going to Aston because they're on an upward trajectory everything at the moment will be quite sweet for him because he can see the potential and they're overachieving based on expectations which is a rare thing in Alonso's recent career I I think the distance we talked about with how long ago all of the success in his career was is probably one of the reasons he still has that hunger at an age where a lot of his a lot of F1 drivers even the great ones they probably do get to their 40s and think do I really still want to be putting up with this and that's probably one of the differences between Alonso and Michael Schumacher, who Ben mentioned earlier. Schumacher's CV was phenomenal by the time he came back. So when he came back and it didn't quite click, perhaps he didn't have the same hunger Alonso has 
uh, now because Alonso's driven on by the fact that he's he's been starved of that oxygen that Ben mentioned for so long. But I also think if we're looking at reasons he's he's got this kind of refreshed mind that he's got now, I think the fact that he went away is part of that. And to make another comparison to Schumacher, Michael Schumacher went away and basically thought he was done. You know, he, he rode around in, in things like German superbikes and that really just for fun. Whereas Alonso went away to do other things, but clearly always had F1 in the back of his mind. So I think wanting to be uh, as at the highest level possible, should he ever come back to F1, was in his mind wherever he went when he was doing sports cars, uh, the Dakar, going back to the Indy 500. It was all, it, it wasn't a post career for him. It, it was kind of an interruption to his F1 career. And I suspect that the success, yeah, he, he won a lot of sports car races without really much competition. You know, sports cars is in quite a different place now to what it was when he was there. But it probably wasn't a bad thing that he did a load of effectively two car races and got to win some of them. Um, and that probably that might just have satisfied the urge for that other des- what might have been a desperation that was creeping in by that point for some success or some validation, as, as Ben kind of painted it. And then he's able to come back with that refreshed mind, but still he hasn't had the success in F1 yet. So that's what's what's driving him on. And I think these are all all of these things add up, and that's how you get to a guy who's at the age Alonso is now and still appears phenomenally hungry to succeed and, and is still capable of delivering and and finally has a car that's helping him feed that hunger. I think you're absolutely right about the fact that when he was away, that F1 was still in his mind because when he walked away, when he, it was announced he wouldn't be racing an F1 in 2019, he was pushing the fact that F1's too predictable, etc. You know that the season you're going to be in for at the start of the year, etc. So he was quite critical of how Formula One was. But I remember, I think a couple of days after the announcement, he was racing at Silverstone in WEC. Because obviously in 18, he had that uh, dovetail deal. He was doing sports cars and F1 because it was the WEC super season, as they called it, in 18 and 19. That was one championship. Hence, he won one World Endurance Championship and two Le Mans 24 Hours. But I put it to him, I said, yeah, but you wouldn't be walking away from Formula One if you felt you had a car that could realistically fight for the championship next year, would you? And he just said, it's true. And then he piled back into that, oh, it's predictable, it's this, it's that. So he didn't almost want to make that point. He he wanted to do the, oh, the F1's a bit rubbish at the moment kind of thing. But yeah, 100%, that was always in there. And I think it does add to the legend that he's done other things as well, because as well as that WEC success, he's won the Daytona 24 hours. He had that great run at Indy in 2017, uh, retired with a Honda engine failure, but he led the race. He was kind of in the mix. Had he been reliable, he'd have certainly got a good result. Could he have won? Could have done? Would he have won? Difficult to say. The inexperience might have counted against him a bit in that final shootout at the end, but he was phenomenal at the Brickyard that year. He's done Dakar as well. So I think he's he has added to his legend. And he talked about that that thing of, I remember when that indie assault was first announced, he said, oh, well, either I win eight world championships to eclipse Schumacher or I win in loads of series to show how brilliant I am. So so I guess he showed a, a little bit of uh, of his versatility and ability by having those those wins else, elsewhere. But Ben, when we just look at what he's done since that comeback, it, it's certainly been a slightly strange journey because by his very nature and by the situation with who's in what teams, he always had to come in with an upwardly mobile midfielder. So it was always going to be a bit of a long shot. 
But you'd have to say he's played it quite well, hasn't he, given where Aston Martin has got to. And the leap they've taken this year, I mean, he could win a race. If he keeps being in position to finish third in races, there's going to be a day when he's going to win one, even with the Red Bull superiority, because Red Bull will have problems or they'll have unreliability or Verstappen and Perez will drive into each other or there'll be a safety <laughs> car or something. Or he'll find his way to be ahead at Monaco, for example. I think he quite fancies his chances of uh, of that. But it's it's actually played pretty well for him. Yeah, this is probably the first time, isn't it, that he's... Well, he got into McLaren at the right time the first time around. It just didn't work out, as we've discussed. This is probably the 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 next time he's got into a team and things have just gone much better than probably anyone could have predicted. Uh, I thought it was quite amusing that he was talking up his chances in, in Monaco and Spain. Um, basically, oh, if we can get to a higher downforce track where they, Red Bull can't use their DRS, I might be able to qualify ahead of them or beat them somehow I think it's a long shot unless they have problems I mean they do have some reliability glitches you know we, we regularly see Verstappen complaining about the the downshifts we know Red Bull are a bit concerned in Bahrain you know it's possible their car lets both drivers down in the same race and Alonso's there to pick up the pieces that's probably his best chance of winning a race even that probably won't be enough though for him ultimately I think you know he's saying this year we didn't expect to be on the podium. So to have, what, four podiums, is it, in five races, that's an overachievement. So that buys everyone in, in the project some some time from Alonso's point of view, you know, some credit. Um, but it's how Aston Martin then kicks on from that point. You know, they, they are benefiting, obviously, from Ferrari and Mercedes massively underachieving and underperforming. If at some point those two teams get their acts together and Aston can't, make the next big step then everything starts to unwind I think and that's when you get into the realms of Alonso tension because his demands and his always on and his relentless push for success and for everyone to do their jobs to the maximum just won't quite meet with the reality of the situation I think he tends to fall out with teams just as they start to kind of miss their mark or people just start easing off a bit because oh you know we haven't got a chance this year of winning or you know uh, going for the championship and that will create stress and in Alonso's case and this is probably his biggest weakness it's destructive stress you know he has no problems in throwing a team that he's unhappy with under the bus when he leaves even one that he's done well in you know people at Renault when he he left after winning his second championship and was off to McLaren they were quite sad at some of the things he said about the efforts in that that final season when, you know, they were kind of being outdeveloped and they were clinging on a bit. And he's doing it again with Renault Mark II, isn't he? You know, he's he's throwing all sorts of shade at Alpine, having left them, you know, about how badly it's run or, you know, how about they did they mistrusted him and judged him poorly, etc. He's not thinking about, you know, where do I go when Project Aston Martin blows up? Um, so he hasn't really changed in that respect. But of course, now he's you know nearly 42. This is his last shot, isn't it? Surely. I know Glenn said he's ageless and he may well be in Formula One in, in his 50s. Who knows? But you kind of feel like it's it's all or nothing with Aston Martin, which is why he's now talking about, you know, taking up that option in the contract and racing on into 2025. I mean, why not? You know, if you're if you can't get into Red Bull and Max Verstappen's locked down till 28, when after which he'll probably then go and do what Alonso's done and race in other categories. You've got your best shot is to be in Aston Martin, probably. Yeah, and I think also Alonso's mellowed a little bit. I think he's 
he has learned from experience. So I think he's probably slightly better equipped to maintain those relationships with teams. Although it was funny because when he was first at Alpine, he, he said, oh, everyone said I can be disruptive. But look, we're all great. Happy family here. And it was the Ocon and <laughs> yes. Alonso best pals act at times. And then, of course... Uh, that didn't last exactly very long, did it? changed a little bit, but that's just uh, what you get with Alonso. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Glenn, given Aston Martin's been on balance second best team this year, Alonso's had four podiums out of five, what chance do you think there is of that elusive 33rd victory this year? Do you think it's inevitable, likely, a long shot? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to defer to Max Verstappen here, who probably knows a thing or two more about F1 than I do. Um, Max has already said, hasn't he, that he can see similarities with Alonso's current situation, with what Max went through when Red Bull was the biggest threat to a dominant Mercedes. I think that the prime example of that would be 2020, wouldn't it, once Ferrari had gone off the boil. And Max said he just had to keep ploughing on and knowing that at some point Mercedes would get tripped up, something would go wrong. And he said he fully expects the same thing to happen to Red Bull at some point. Uh, so then the onus is on Fernando to be the guy that day who is there who is there to benefit. But I think Max is, is right. Uh, as dominant as Red Bull are right now, it, it's literally unheard of for any team to win every single race. There are more races than there have ever been as well. So Red Bull would have to win so many more races than McLaren did in 1988 when they only lost one. The difficulty, I think, as Ben hinted at earlier, is if Ferrari and Mercedes gradually get their act together this year, will Alonso's kind of run that he's got at the moment of almost always being the guy who's next in line Will that become more difficult as the season goes on? If you know, if Mercedes brings some upgrades that, that gets that car properly into the mix, it would be typical if we get to say the the latter half or the latter third of the season, and that's when Red Bull's development has backed off a little bit, or they start having some problems. If Alonso has to wait until then for the for the door to open, he might just have more competition to be in the at the front of the queue, um, but. I agree with the logic that that Max put forward that at some point we can't you can't see it right now I can't I can't imagine what the circumstances will be but at some point it will all go wrong for Red Bull and logic would tell you at the moment Alonso is best placed for to be the guy who picks up the pieces yeah and if he has a sniff of victory he will maximize it 
There's no question about that. The race that comes to mind is Fuji in 2008 in the Renault, where there was a bit of chaos. Phenomenal drive. Yeah, a bit of chaos at the first corner. It ended up with Robert Kubica leading with Alonso second. And Alonso was pretty much calling the strategic shots from in the car. It's like he was saying, right, this is what we'll do. Bang, 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 did it won the race. Okay, there was some good fortune to allow it because the runner wasn't the quickest car by any means. But yeah, he's still got that one in him. And I think given Aston Martin, they have got pretty ambitious targets with their developments and upgrades this year. They've obviously got the advantage of significantly more wind tunnel and CFD time because they were seventh in last year's championship. Those allocations do reset mid-season, so that'll change in the second half of the year. But especially seeing as Red Bull will have to be a little bit more cautious this year than they would normally have to be. Aston Martin can kind of put a little bit of pressure and keep knocking on that door. So that's what they'll be hoping to do. So it all just depends on how that how that shakes out. But Alonso's doing what he needs to do. And the, the amazing thing is, Ben, is one thing I did wonder about Alonso with age is because his his driving style, such as it is, which isn't really a driving style, but his is he's got quite an improvisational style, which is dependent on kind of great confidence at corner entry. He's quite happy to hustle the car, provoke the car, deal with what it does. I did wonder if that was a style that might be more prone to losing a bit of the edge with age because it just depends on phenomenal ability to keep it going. But he's absolutely there. I've not seen any real loss from that. He's still probably the most adaptable driver on the grid in terms of what he does with the driving style. And you add all that to the brilliant racecraft and... He's just still absolutely phenomenal and he's always been strong well, no matter what the rule set is. Yeah, I think he's probably the best driver we've seen or certainly I've seen for having extra capacity when driving at their limit. It's almost like he he's deliberately been able to carve out an extra 5 or 10% brain space when racing at 200 miles an hour to do all the other things that you mentioned, you know, strategizing his way through Fuji 2008, even at his first test in Formula One with Renault, Pat Simmons was there. And obviously they were impressed with his pace and consistency, etc., because, you know, he was a phenomenal driver. But it was his, uh, his capacity to understand what was going on and feed back to the team, even while driving. That, like, that seems to be a pattern throughout his career, right from the start and through um, Andrea Stella, who's obviously now team principal at McLaren, but was Alonso's race engineer at Ferrari and and then a sort of engineering director uh, slash Alonso ally at McLaren Honda. He said that he'd never come across a driver with a kind of greater intellect, so an understanding of the engineering side of Formula One. It could have been an engineer if he wanted to be in Formula One rather than a driver. So he's able to focus on the details trip up a lot of other very good drivers who become limited because at the point at which they need to start marrying their natural ability to deeper technical understanding and also adjusting to the different demands as Formula One evolves and the cars change, Alonso doesn't get left behind because he's got the intelligence to understand it all and how it interacts with the driving. And also in the car, Stella was saying he is a driver probably unmatched, certainly, in, that Stella has seen. in And he worked with Schumacher, let's not forget, um, in a, being able to delineate the point at which he's driving around a problem in the car and the car is creating the problem. So instead of having to spend forever in a debrief trying to work out, well, if you just do this tiny thing, the car won't do that. Oh, no, no, you need to change the car here because then I can do this. Alonso is bang on with that that fine edge of am I creating the problem 
or out, or is the car the problem? Whereas a lot of drivers will just get lost in the kind of I, I'm limited, but I don't know it's me causing the limitation. So they just, I mean, I'm sure it happened with Pierre Gasly at Red Bull. They just butt heads with the team relentlessly until it breaks apart. And I think it all goes back to Alonso's capacity. So he drives in a way where he's, I don't think he's ever at 100% of his brain power when he's in the car. And therefore, I think as time has gone on, because his brain power hasn't degraded, he's able to keep the level up because he's, he's he's able to think his way around the car live he's not just finding oh i'm getting a bit old so so now i just can't quite react in the same way and he he doesn't need to react like most drivers do because he's he's ahead of problems all the time when he's in the car yeah it's proactive rather than reactive some of the time though still exactly, sometimes yeah. there are times when he does depend on the reactiveness but yeah just a, a phenomenal driver and the great thing is for Aston Martin is what they found is a driver who because th- they like Vettel and Vettel produced some very fine performances for that team on and off but what Alonso's doing is producing great performances just on yeah and I think that's that's the great it's, it's always the, the word that's used isn't it Glenn relentless for Alonso and I guess in that one word, it sums up not only how he performs, but also probably why he's still here. That relentless pursuit of of, of winning, of winning, despite the fact that most may have long given up. He's relentless in and out of the car as well. I, th- I think he, I think he's done a very good job at not allowing kind of the rest of his life to get into a position where it could interfere with with the business of being a world class racing driver not just a formula one driver yeah he's got that incredible focus on on the task at hand and he will be i'm sure from the moment he first walked through the doors at aston martin he'd have been there leading by example trying to drive things on trying to raise standards everywhere he could i'm sure vettel did all of that as well but i imagine the people inside aston martin will have seen a step change with getting alonso at this stage in his career compared to what they got with Vettel at that stage in in Sebastian's career. And I think that's that's why it works. And that's why I say that I could see him going on and on and on. I, I almost feel that that motivation isn't going to wane as long as the car's competitive. And the key thing we've touched on a few times here is that I think he will want to keep seeing progress from Aston Martin. I know he laughed when Someone implied, you know, you getting bored of these third places. Do you want a second or a first? That, that, that might have been me. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was. And and he sort of said, "Oh, suddenly we've only, you know, we've only had five races, and suddenly I'm being told third places aren't enough." <laughs> Again, that's an example of what he says one thing, but really what he's thinking in his head is these third places are great, but they have to be a base camp to get in towards something else. And I think. We all had our doubts about if he would be a good fit at Aston Martin because he would be this demanding. It just so happens that he's come in and he's being demanding at a time that the team is delivering. They have stepped up. So it works. And I think if they continue to progress, it will continue to work. He'll continue to be to be happy and motivated and it will all work. The difficulty, of course, comes if next year, if Aston Martin stands still next year, or if, if their progress isn't good enough and they get jumped by a couple of teams, I'm sure he'll be able to see if they've done a good job and they have moved on, but it's just not enough compared to a couple of underachieving giants. Because let's face it, Aston's leap has been flattered by what Mercedes and Ferrari are getting wrong at the moment. But it, I, I think what will dictate what goes on from here 
is that Aston Martin's trajectory has to continue to be upward. We talked about the fact that he finally found that upwardly mobile team that he wanted, the reason that he was sticking around. They have to maintain that now and he will be he'll be driving it, but his his expectations will be getting higher and higher the more success that comes. Yeah, and I think that's probably where he also provides some good impetus to the team. I mean, ultimately, nobody's sitting around not putting effort in Aston Martin, but you've got Lawrence Stroll there pushing for success with his slightly cringeworthy I'm a winner <laughs> stuff, but... It works, though, doesn't it? You can't argue with what he's. You can't argue with what he's invested and what he's put in place. Certainly, so there, there's that force driving the team on. The desire inside that team to achieve, obviously, a combination of people who've been there for a long time who finally have the chance in this underdog team to become something bigger than that, and all the people who've been attracted to the project, the Dan Fallows types, this kind of thing to, to bulk up the team. In fact, they're moving into the the new factory. This month, by the end of the month, they'll be in there. There's a new wind tunnel coming that'll be online next year. So there's lots still to come there, but they do need to kind of keep on it and avoid what you might call Alpine syndrome, whereby they're always in the first part of a five-year plan or a hundred race plan, but the end point of their plans never comes. (laughs) But that's, I think, where Alonso is beneficial because... He's not just driving around having a lovely time finishing third, is he, Ben? He's still as driven as ever. He does. He wants to win that third world championship. And he's on a trajectory that makes it possible. It's not, it's not impossible. He could be in a position to fight for a world championship. Then it's just a case of can he win it? How strong is the car? Who's he up against? How does he fare? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Stroll, for all his kind of foibles, having that is also as relentlessly focused on winning. Like he, he hasn't invested all that money and taken on that project and taken it in the direction he has done to just finish third or fourth. He wants, he wants the team and his son as well to become world champions. And that marries quite well with Alonso's mindset. I mean, he was quite critical of Alpine for being so happy at finishing fourth in the championship last year, you know, celebrating it like it's a big thing, you know, for a team like that, which is, as you say, forever on the first or second year of a five-year plan, a works team for a long time. They they, sh- they are underachieving. So in Alonso's mind, okay, obviously he's already left by that point in, in terms of where he's going, but he'll be looking at that and going, you don't have the mentality of winners. You're, you're happy to be the best of the midfield. You should be demanding more of yourselves. You should be unhappy with this. I'm not happy with it. And at the moment, he'll be seeing an upgrade in that sense at Aston Martin because everything is being put together and certain people are being sidelined as well from the old project if they're not quite lining up with the relentless need for improvement and perfection and Glenn's point earlier about the upgrades this is the key thing now because it's all very well for Aston to do a kind of Red Bull 2022 type car using the expertise they've drawn in from outside making a good start because Ferrari and Mercedes are slightly out of the way but the car's draggy, you know, it's got good performance, but it, it doesn't have the range of performance necessarily. The other teams around them have tried to go more in the Red Bull direction of having a racier car with a bit less drag and trading off some of that corner performance for straight line. And then they're getting into trouble with that. What happens when Aston inevitably has to do something similar to compete with Red Bull? We don't have any of the, the tangible answers yet. We don't recognise that team as one that particularly outdevelops other teams. They've done quite well from a low starting point in progressing but in that relentless development fight with really you know 
okay, they're not performing well at the moment, but usually quite hot organisations. Mercedes are normally good at development. We know Red Bull are. Ferrari, okay, a bit iffy, but they have a lot of resource. Can Aston really match that month after month, year after year, even with a little bit of regulatory help? It's possible, but it's not guaranteed. And they will have to show something more to maintain this honeymoon period with Alonso, I think. The Alpine reference is is really interesting there. Ultimately, Alonso has driven for all the teams recently that have got themselves to the front of the midfield and had ambitions on taking that next step. And McLaren and Alpine both stalled out when they got to that point. And it was starting to look like it was effectively impossible for anyone to take that leap. And it's great that Aston Martin, technically just before he got there, really, because that's when all the work was done, have proven that it was possible. It's, I, I'm... I'm I'm relieved that somebody finally did it because I, I was getting as fed up as everybody else, including Fernando Alonso, at seeing McLaren and Alpine or Enstone, you know, it was Renault before, almost taking turns to to be the team at the front. And it's like, right, here we go. Now we, we've got ourselves, we've got the foundation we need. Now we're going to take the next step. And they'd always fumble it. And it's great that Aston Martin haven't. And I think the timing of Alonso being there, coming in just as they've made that step is perfect because we all have the impression that he's not leaving any performance from that car on the table, certainly not in race trim. You know, is he the greatest qualifier on the F1 grid at the moment? Probably not, but he's certainly good enough. But over a race distance, you're not getting there and seeing, you're not going, is there another 10 seconds in race time in that car? There probably isn't when Fernando Alonso's at the wheel. So Aston Martin know that they are seeing the absolute maximum of what's capable. And I have to say that if this car had taken that step forward and Sebastian Vettel was still the lead driver, based on what we'd seen from Vettel for the last three years of his career, you would have a doubt, perhaps. You would be saying, is that the absolute maximum? Is 30 seconds behind a Red Bull the best that car is capable of? It might have been, but we wouldn't quite be sure. Whereas I feel with Alonso, Aston Martin knows that it's got a real benchmark and that the capabilities of the car are being exploited. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting if Stroll happened to be the lead driver in that team and he was paired with a a younger driver or an equivalent experienced driver because you wouldn't be judging this season as Aston Martin as the second best team in that instance. You know, Stroll is sometimes struggling to make the top six in that car in qualifying in the races, whereas Alonso's relentlessly in the podium fight. So he's definitely making a big difference there. The question then becomes, well, at some point, you don't imagine this is going to happen because of the unique setup in that team, but does Stroll become a weak link and Aston, to fulfil its ambitions, do they need to put in a stronger driver than him alongside Alonso, one who's maybe potentially stronger than Alonso? And then what? how does that change the dynamic in the sense that you know Alonso's suddenly got someone giving him something to think about rather than being easily the guy who's the highest performer in the team and can give advice to his teammate while he's driving around the track. You know, I don't feel like Alonso I don't feel like Alonso ever needs to be pushed necessarily, but you 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 feel like maybe at some point a team might wonder if there's more performance in there if someone's giving Alonso a harder time and I don't know if Stroll's ever going to get to the point where he can do that. Um so either Alonso retires before this becomes a question the team needs to ask itself or Alonso remains so relentless and Aston has to look at the Stroll 
question and, and if they're really ruthlessly focused on evolving into winners and constructors championship contenders they need to get someone who's higher performing in the second car to score more points but also to put Alonso under a bit more pressure yeah I can't see much changing on that score for the next few years certainly I think Alonso's perfectly content with that he's always liked being the focal point um, and it's it's been a hard task being his uh, his teammates uh, at times over the years but I think the one thing that really strikes me is just how box office Fernando Alonso still is. He's endlessly fascinating. He's a brilliant driver. It's great that he's in Formula One because the more mega drivers here in F1, the better fundamentally. But he's also one of the most interesting in terms of this career trajectory we've talked about and all the things, the myths surrounding him, how much of that myth about certain things he does is true. And there's always that blend of fact and fiction. And you have to say, Glenn, Formula One is better off for having him still around, isn't it? Yeah, and that's why, like I said earlier, I'm so glad that he's back at the front. So all the things that we know and I would say love about him are becoming more visible to to more people. I I, I love the the bombast, the way the way he talks about himself. As you said, he's not someone who needs to tell us how great he is, but he doesn't miss an opportunity to tell you how great he is. And that, with more and more people that can wear thin. Even if you're doing a great job, if you're always doing a great job to finish eighth, eventually people get a bit bored of hearing about it. Now we're we're hearing and we're seeing what a great job he's doing to keep getting podiums. It's great to see him back on F1 podiums as well. See him at the sharp end, starting on the front row, leading leading races. It's where he belongs. He's back where he belongs. And I'm I'm glad, as I said. I've I've seen the entirety of Fernando Alonso's F1 career. I know how great the first few years were. I've I've always appreciated him and what he brings. I'm glad that everybody who's perhaps newer to Formula One is now seeing that as well because he hasn't lost he hasn't lost any of that. He he's still got the the air of of mischief, the, the the confidence, the relentlessness that we've talked about. All these things, all these ingredients make up a fascinating character in and out of the car. And as I say, at the front of the grid is where he belongs. And and I get the feeling, you know, we're going to see him for a while yet to come as well, which is great. Yeah, that's uh, that side of him, the the enjoyment he gets out of being a bit of a provocateur sometimes is always enjoyable. A great example of that was when all the Alpine contract stuff was going on last year with Piastri and everything. It just just posted a video of him hanging around wherever he was in Spain or something, just grinning. And it's just, <laughs> he just can't help doing it, which is, I think, brilliant for F1. Ben, we'll leave you to say the final word. Alonso still clearly has quite a bit to offer, doesn't he? He's going to be around for a few more years yet. And I think that's actually going to almost let him solidify himself in the mind of, should we say drive to survive generation Formula One, which he didn't really have a big foothold in before this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on it earlier. You know, he was in danger of looking like just some aging midfield bloke who was occasionally a bit handy or, you know, qualified quite high in the wet, which, you know, to an unassuming audience can just seem like a random circumstance rather than an example of profound skill. But having come back, having had that break. Uh, from Formula One, he's refreshed himself. He's lost none of the the fire and also those mischievous, interesting character traits that Glenn mentioned. So he's he's Alonso at full throttle at the moment, which is really enjoyable to watch, both on the track and off. I feel like every comment he's making, where 
he's self-justifying and saying, look how great I've been. It's not only self-promotion. It's To me, it's like petty revenge. He's having barbs at the people that he's fallen out with in Formula 1 in the past who've doubted his talent or doubted he's the right guy to lead the team and he's saying ha look look at me look at the stupid decision you made to not back me and that's that's all part of the fun and on track I think the moment for me was the first race Bahrain when he pulled that uh unexpected move on Hamilton at the tight left hand or was it turn is it turn 10 I forget the number exactly around that circuit it was that is Alonso's creativity and uh, relentless brilliance as a racer which has kind of been hidden from view in the kind of post 2013 uh, stretch of his career when he's been in bad cars he's still been doing that kind of you know wide arcing driving where he cuts back underneath drivers and manipulates the circuit to to not only not get beaten but create overtaking opportunities most of them are hidden and now finally he's in a car where he's near enough to the front that he's mixing it with some people who the newer audience to Formula One will recognise as very good and front runners, and he's handing it to them a bit. And that's a good point for people to kind of go, oh, actually, this guy's, he's not just some old bloke. He's actually one of the top drivers on the grid and could potentially win if, if the car gets good enough. And you know, it'll, be, it'll be very exciting for us to see if the Formula One utopia happens eventually and we have... Red Bulls and Mercedes and Ferrari and Aston Martins all within much of a muchness, a tenth or two, able to compete for victories on a given day. Alonso will be right there. Um, and maybe he will claim that elusive third championship. It's a long shot, I think, with the you know realities we know about Formula One and how long it takes for these, these things to, to change. Um, but let's hope for the best. The odds have certainly come in I think it's fair to say they've shortened still not short odds but yeah he's got every chance I think that's all you want to see in Formula 1 really you want to see these top drivers Alonso is is a great driver he's an all-time great if he stopped tomorrow he'd be one of them I mean the, the number of championships isn't automatically a barometer of how great you are obviously if you win a lot of championships that does show you've been very good for a long time but Alonso's been very good for a very long time and probably doesn't have as many championships he'd, as he he'd be in my dream team He'd certainly be in my dream team. I think you mentioned it, Ed. You know, he'd be near the top of your list. Yeah, well, obviously, you keep your cards. You keep your cards quite close to your chest when forming your ideal F one lineup. But I, I think, I thought, I think Alonso would be in my in my driver lineup if I was just putting together a an F1 team from scratch the only caveat I think I'd have is if you were formulating a team you might think about age and that kind of thing not so much in terms of decline but if you've got say Alonso and Hamilton both towards the end of their careers or say a Verstappen who's younger albeit making noises about whether he might not race beyond his current Come 30 <laughs> I, I think he will I think he will but that's by the way but that that all has a factor but yeah Alonso is a great driver so I want to see him up there with Verstappen with Hamilton. I want to see Leclerc showing how he can do against them, how Russell can, can Carlos Sainz kind of just find that last fraction of a percent just to be right in there with them. That's what people want to see. For me, it's never been about wanting to see one driver out there having all the success. You you want to see them pitched against each other because that's how you learn more about them. And it's just exciting to see because Verstappen versus Alonso or Hamilton versus Alonso, or any, any of these things, these are great battles. And 
I think it's to F1's benefit that Fernando Alonso is still back around and hopefully that'll be the case for a few more years to come. He's endlessly fascinating as hopefully we've given a taste of on this podcast. So thanks very much to Ben and Glenn for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads there on the latest from the world of Formula One. Check out our other podcasts including of course Bring Back V10s which Glenn insists we promote at the end of it. There's a great back catalogue there even though we're waiting for season eight to come together. That tells classic F1 stories. We've also got podcasts on IndyCar, on MotoGP and Formula E as well and also have a look at our YouTube channel for both short and long videos on F1. Well, the next race at Imola may be a week away, but stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.